Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upburnfrisco.com. So last week, I, I started just talking about uh, the vast subject of uh, suffering and pain, and everyone's like, oh, yay, <laughs> we're going back to that. <laughs> you know, we love to talk about the joy of the Lord and the party of heaven, which are constant realities. The joy of the Lord is our strength. There's this weird thing where we can actually uh, count it all joy when we are in the midst of trials. There's this weird thing that Paul even prays for, that he would know Jesus in a special way, that he would know Jesus in the fellowship of sufferings. But it's it's, it doesn't end there because we don't worship a God of suffering and death. We worship a God of resurrection, right? So like Paul knew this, the, the first century knew this, that death wasn't the end, that death was another doorway. Now, it, there's a, a quote, I'm gonna get it wrong, but it's essentially this, that the church was built on the foundation of the blood of the martyrs. And you know, Rome, could control anyone with one thing, and that is the fear of death. But for some reason, Rome couldn't control the Christians because they weren't afraid of death. They were thinking, you know what? The worst thing that you can do to me is send me right into the arms of the one I love the most. And I know that's like a crazy way to think, It's a crazy way to walk around this world and be thankful for suffering and thankful for trials. And even as strangely as it sounds, count the potential honor of being martyred for Christ, laying down your actual physical life for Christ. And it's a weird way to walk around this world thinking that these momentary troubles truly are light in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that's on the other side. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm living for that moment when I see his face and he's like, boy." That's my version of well done, good and faithful servant. You know, like, that's my boy. <laughs> and I, I wanna talk to you like, like a dad for a moment, if you will allow me. Some of you guys are ladies and men, you're far older than me, but I just want to speak from a a father's standpoint or maybe just a good friend. Um, The ideas around suffering and pain and loss are things that we are going to have to embrace and get comfortable with, even the, the mystery of not having it all figured out, because we certainly cannot ignore it. These are things that we have to take to the Lord and ask him about because if we don't ask Jesus these hard questions and come up with some sort of theology, some sort of understanding, some sort of comfort around the idea of suffering, then we are setting ourselves up to leave the faith entirely when the day of trouble comes. And there are all sorts of different camps that you can end up in And um, I'm not telling you where to land. I want to talk about the goodness of Jesus and have the Holy Spirit escort you into those green pastures with him on your own with him. Because there is a vast 
spectrum of places that we can end up in regards to our thoughts towards suffering, whether God ordains it all or whether he weeps with us through it all and redeems it all. These are things that we should ponder and each set of these beliefs have fruit in our lives. The way that we believe about God has consequences. It, we literally, our behavior flows from our identity and our identity comes from the things we think about God and ourselves, our perspective of ourselves from God's point of view and our perspective of God. And the way that we walk through this life manifests through that filter. And so what we believe about God matters more than anything else. That's why I started off the the year with this question, who do you say that I am? And that's why I I want this year to be a year of prayer, contemplative, conversational prayer, engaging prayer, intercessory prayer, declarative prayer, where we are diving into the subject of who is this king of glory? Because what we think about him hits every place in our life. And one thing I've learned, I I mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating, is that we can't have all of the answers. We We just won't. That's why I said we have to become a little bit comfortable with the idea of mystery. But one thing I've learned is that when I don't have the answers, I realize the answer has me. And that is the most incredible feeling and we have, um, we've become accustomed as a church of being professionals at having all the answers, all the right answers, right? Knowing it all, being prepared to give an answer. Um, but we have a generation that has come along, has, it's full of all the questions, the unanswerable ones. If you ever want to be humbled, go to the children's ministry and, and invite them to ask you any question that they want about God. They might say something like, why did my grandma suffer? Or, you know, something that you are are deeper waters than we can wade into with our own minds. Um, As I'm talking about this stuff, I want us to be continually aware that we are surrounded in glorious celebration. We're seated in heavenly places where everyone is worshiping. Jesus, who has secured this lamb, who has secured the ultimate victory, this lamb who has ransomed nations by his blood, this lamb who is worthy of all of our praise. And so we are weirdos because we know the end of the story, right? Which means that when we are facing a trial, uh, we can name it as temporary, As a community, I want us to also uh, live on this hill, not die on this hill, live on this hill of believing for miracles, believing that uh, the power of God can be the answer for all the impossibilities of life, and the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than anything any doctor could ever say. And I want us to continue to contend for that and believe for that, which is why we often lay hands on the sick and um, I want to share a quick testimony with you guys. Uh, where's, where's Gabe? Gabe Simon, can you wave your hand? He's standing in the back. His, his mother came to church a few weeks ago. Yeah, sweet Gabe's mom. She came to church and she had a brace on, right? And um, 
she said that she got prayed for like three times before she made it out the door and she never even asked for prayer. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> I saw her and I was like, oh, your knee. <laughs> I just started praying for her knee. I was like, oh yeah, I'm Jeremy, what's your name? And that's just the kind of culture that we, we have here, which is amazing. Well, anyway, she, um, uh, she went back home. Um, she was missing a meniscus in her knee. One leg was an inch shorter, walking with basically constant pain. Uh, over the course of like a day, the pain went away. Her knee grew an inch. She went back to her home church and laid her brace on the altar and gave her testimony to the church. Yeah, and, so, and she took a, someone took a picture. She took a picture. We have a picture of her knee brace at the altar of this church. We're not gonna put it up, up today, but it was just an amazing testimony. And that's, the, that's one of many. You know, we, we believe that, uh, of course, we believe that God can heal, but we believe that God wants to heal and we believe that God will heal through us. Uh, we've, we've seen too much to just bow down to whatever uh, medical profession professionals might say. We've, we've experienced and we know too much. And even if we haven't seen it ourselves, what we don't want to do is have our theology live down to our experience, but we want it to live up to the truth of Scripture. We have to keep on fighting and believing and keep on praying. John Wimber, who led uh, one of the biggest healing movements in modern history, prayed for a thousand people before he saw one healing. A thousand suffering people that he laid his hands on didn't get healed until he healed one. And you know what happened after that? Tons of people got healed. Thousands. People from all over the world flew in. They had rooms full of wheelchairs and, and crutches from people who didn't need them anymore. And so we're just going to keep on believing that because we don't want to make a theology from failure. We don't want to make a theology where we are also excusing ourselves from the privilege of seeing heaven manifest through our hands. So um, speaking of the, just a theology around suffering, um, in, in John chapter 9, the disciples asked Jesus a very telling question. I say it's a telling question because it said a lot about their theology. They saw a man who was born blind, and they asked Jesus this question, did this man sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? See, they had a concept that someone did something wrong in order for that person to be suffering, right? How many times have we done that to ourselves? What did I do wrong? I mean, did I inherit this? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And a lot of translations say, uh, he's, he's like this so that the works of God may be manifested. But I, I listened to a Greek scholar say that that could e just as easily be translated instead of so that, it's translated, but let which makes a big difference, right? Neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned for him to be like this, but let the power of God, but let the works of God be manifested in his life. It makes a big difference. And I'm not telling you what to think. You can still think that God caused it. You're allowed to think that. But I wanted to invite you into that cool little fact that that could be translated a different way. <clears throat> 
Suffering, injustice, pain, and sorrow are things that we all face at times. No one gets a pass uh, that lasts throughout all of this life. Sometimes we suffer even for doing good. Jesus said, you're going to suffer for doing good. Sometimes we suffer for <laughs> our bad decisions. Uh, sometimes there's a re- like redemptive beauty that we see come from suffering, and sometimes there's just suffering that we have a really hard time seeing any kind of redemptive value in it on this side of heaven. And I think that if you were to take a screenshot of Jesus's life when he was dying like a thief, you would say his life is like a dumpster fire. It's fallen apart. No good can come of this. If you just stopped at Jesus hanging on the cross next to thieves, you would have an opinion about him that didn't include his resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the foundation of the church spreading like wildfire around the world and the good news of the gospel. And not only that, like Christ in us, the hope of glory. If you just took a screenshot of the suffering, you wouldn't see that there was insane redemption on the other side of it. If you just took a screenshot of Paul's life, at the end of his life, he dies a felon in prison, right? He is murdered just like a common thief. He's executed. He's, and you can hear in his letters, like all the little home churches, he's got a whole bunch of home groups, right? They're all falling apart. They're all coming up with these weird doctrines and getting drunk on, on the communion. And I mean, and he's, he's trying, he, they're, they're arguing about if a Gentile has to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul's like, oh my God. And he's sending out all these letters trying to fix his broken home groups. And then he dies in prison. If you took a screenshot of his life in that moment, it would look horrible, but you don't see the redemptive plan of God because our book is full of the letters that he wrote to those churches and millions upon millions of Christians throughout history have come to the Lord because in a dark place or in a beautiful place, Paul sat down and wrote something. So it's hard to judge our lives before we stand before him, isn't it? Sometimes we do suffer from our bad choices. You know, lies that we believe about ourselves and lies that we believe about God manifest in sinful behavior and these actions have a shelf life and these actions have consequences in our lives and, and sometimes they're really painful consequences and everyone in here knows exactly what I'm talking about. We've We've all fallen at times and experienced the the pain of our own bad choices. And I have really, really good news for you, though. It says in Psalm 56, verse 8, you have taken into account all my wanderings. And you've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Did you guys catch that? You've taken into account all of my wanderings. Another way that I would probably say that is, God, you have made provision for my stupidity. You have preemptively planned escape routes for the dumb mistakes that I make. He saves me from way more suffering than I should probably be experiencing. Any parents in here um, ever have a particularly clumsy toddler? Yeah, yeah. 
had one or you currently have one. We, we had one, our firstborn. That boy, he could find any corner of a table with his forehead. <laughs> at, like, if you were to look at Judah when he was a toddler, you would think that he grew up in a house full of slippery stairs and rocking chairs and, and metal coffee tables. Like, at any given point, he had like displayed on his body all the stages of wound recovery. Like, a fresh one, one that's two days old, one that's just like slightly purple. This kid was constantly falling down and it, we, had to, we had to save him. And everyone is like, well, you know, pain is a good teacher. Yes, yes, but death is not. So, <laughs> and so any parent in here knows that you're trying, you're saving them from most of it, right? You show up and you, at the last minute, but just before a really bad one happens, you save them. And that's how the Lord loves us. That's how the Lord shepherds us. That's how he fathers us. You know, we have five kids, and, sometimes, and we have a three-year-old, sweet Shiloh. He's, he's getting pretty coordinated, but he had some, some clumsy toddler years. But I remember training the older kids in how to keep him safe. And I would say, you have to think like a dad. And the way a dad thinks is you are expecting him to do the dumbest thing. <laughs> Seriously, you are, you're expecting him to, if there is something he can hurt himself with, he will find a way to hurt himself with. You're, if he's near a curb, he's gonna trip on it and fall into the streets. You're, or he'll just run into the street. You have to be prepared to save his life. And I'm, like, I'm helping them understand this kid is going to hurt himself. And if you're close to it and have the ability to stop it, please do. <sighs> God's made these, he saves us from the bulk of our, the pain that we could encounter in life because he's merciful. He's kind. He, he doesn't like us, to see us afflicted in pain. He, he would much rather see us experience the realization of his mercy. He would much rather have us see that the goodness of God is leading us to repentance. The kindness of God is leading us to repentance. But sometimes um, we go all prodigal, just like the disciples with their full bellies and their clean feet running away from the Lord. We find ourselves in the, the pig pen of life surrounded by the slop of our own worldly choices, right? And even in that moment, there's provision, right? That prodigal son came to himself and he remembered the generosity of the father. He remembered how he was constantly generous that even the, even the servants were so well taken care of. And that's what turned him back, of course, and the beautiful story of the father running to him. Or, or how about Jonah? This is actually, a, a, the churches all over the world are, are reading from Jonah today from the, uh, the common lectionary. It's just one of the verses for the annual calendar. And Jonah, think about this guy. We've all done this. God tells us to do something and we say, no thanks. And we go the other direction, just like Jonah. He's trying to flee from God. <laughs> 
How do you flee from Mr. Existence, you know? He's trying to, he goes to the far side of the world to Tarshish or Tarshish, he's on, a, on the boat, you know the story. Storm comes up and everyone on the boat is, who offended God? Who, which one of you guys have, have a weird God? You offended and sent a storm. Like, they're, they're literally wondering who, and Jonah, you know, it's, it's me. And he ends up being cast into the ocean uh, reluctantly, these guys were really nice sailors. They really wanted him to not be thrown into the sea, but eventually they're like, it's better you than me. And so he goes in the sea. And <clears throat> it actually says, but God had prepared. But God had prepared a fish That gives me warm, fuzzy feelings. I mean, that is a really good dad. He made provision for Jonah's stupidity. He took into account his potential wanderings. And God was like, well, it's either obedience or fish, and you chose fish. <laughs> Lucky for you, I've been growing this thing for decades. Have you thought about that? That fish, how old does it have to be to fit a prophet in its belly? That's a big fish. And God thought of it. It's like, someday Jonah's gonna be an idiot and I'm gonna have to have this fish ready, you know? And not only that, the fish took him where he was supposed to go. Delivered him on the shores of his destiny. Do you feel like you are in a stinky tight place right now? It feels like death and smells like it too. Maybe you had decided not to do something God told you to do, or maybe you just think that maybe you decided to not do something that God told you to do. Beloved, I have really good news. He prepared a fish for you. And this suffering is light and momentary, and if you submit to it, it might just vomit you on the shores of your destiny. Even Jesus spends three days in the belly, and he said, when, the, when everyone's asking for a sign, what miraculous sign will you give us? He says, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Even Jesus goes into the belly for three days and comes back and he has a message that turns the whole world upside down just like what happened with Jonah. Last week, I, I hit some highlights from, from Matthew 8 and um, maybe you recall the moment when uh, we were talking about how Jesus was in a really big rush. Jesus, who's just cool as a cucumber and chill, he can just vanish through angry crowds. He's suddenly in a, in a hurry right? And he's already started a revival. He wants to leave in such haste that a teacher of the law wants to join them. And he says, nah, you know, there's, there's no place for you to lay your head. You know, he, he gives this, you know, this reason, like, you're not going to like it anyway. <laughs> and, and then another guy is like, first, let me bury my father. One of his disciples is like, let me first bury my father, and then I'll come with you. He's like, let the dead bury their dead. And he's getting like in the boat. This is a crazy non-pastoral moment for Jesus. And, and he's in this big rush, and they go, and the, the storm happens. He quiets the storm. 
And he gets to the other side. And this story shows up in Mark chapter five. And I wasn't planning on going into this, but now I feel like it. So I'm gonna grab my Bible. If you guys open to Mark chapter five. So he's in a hurry to leave a revival that he started. He gets across the lake after a big storm. Crazy stuff is, is happening, like trying to either prevent him or maybe the wind is blowing him to the other side of the lake. And he's finally to the other side. And in Mark chapter five, verse one, it says this, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. This dude was demonized. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Verse five, this is Mark 5, 5. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. That is a vivid depiction of suffering. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to me that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked, what's your name? He said, we are legion for we're many. And he begged Jesus again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding by the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went to the pigs the herd, about 2,000 in numbers, number, rushed down the steep bank and ran into the lake where they were drowned. Weird story. Weird story. So cool. So cool, Jesus. <clears throat> okay, skip down. So Jesus has, has done this amazing thing, and this super-duper suffering man who is highly demonized is set free, and then verse 18, they're going to leave. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus didn't let him let him and said, go instead to your family and your home and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. First of all, Decapolis isn't a town. Decapolis is 10 towns. The Decapolis is, Deca is 10. This dude who was known to be the scariest, most demonized person who would wail from loneliness and sorrow in a cemetery has been set free and now he is the biggest evangelist of the day. And all who hear him are amazed. Do you guys know why Jesus went in such a hurry to get to the other side of the lake? Psalm 10, verses 17 through 18 says, You, O Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, and you listen to their cry, this one who cried out day and night in the tombs the Lord could hear. You're defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. 
What if Jesus heard in the spirit? What if the father obviously is hearing the cry of this demonized man on the other side of the lake? Jesus leaves a revival. People are begging to get in the boat with him. And the exact same thing happens on the other side. He sets free this one man who's begging to get in the boat with him. And this one man turns into the biggest evangelist of the day. Did God author the suffering of that man? I don't think so. But I do know that Jesus redeemed it so beautifully that we would be tempted to think so. That man who experienced the depths of sorrow and rejection and oppression, that has become the fire in his belly, the food that sustains him as he goes and sets people free all over the nation from the same things that he was oppressed by. I mentioned martyrs earlier. You know that Stephen is the first martyr of the first century church. That dude got to see Jesus stand up from his throne in honor of him, almost applauding Stephen as he's laying down his life. Stephen echoing even the words of Jesus in that moment. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this against them. Stephen died so well. He faced suffering so beautifully that 44 verses later, his prayer pardoned the man who murdered him and Saul was ransomed out of the kingdom of darkness. The very man who murdered Stephen, 44 verses later, is knocked off his donkey. And like we said earlier, the murderer of Stephen wrote half of our New Testament. The murderer of Stephen, Paul himself was saying, I could go home right now. And one of the reasons he was excited about going home is because he would be welcomed into the paradise at the applause and embrace of Stephen. Last week, I mentioned how there's a provisional blessing that comes with suffering, and it's that you can experience the closeness of the Lord unlike any other time. It's the weirdest thing, because God doesn't want us to suffer. In the garden, the plan was paradise, be fruitful, multiply, eat tasty fruit, and, like, and subdue and expand the garden. It was paradise, right? He didn't, his, his number one plan was not suffering and pain. And so now that we experience suffering, pain, and death, he has a provisional blessing within it, a provisional blessing of his tangible closeness. Psalm 34, you are close to the brokenhearted. You save those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 23, even in the valley of the shadow, you're with me. I'm not afraid because I know you're with me. Jesus smuggled himself into death itself, into all the hells that we could possibly experience in this life or the next, into our suffering. And he is still the one who walks with us through the deepest, darkest moments of our life. When we find ourselves in the worst, darkest prison, we think we're at the very, very bottom, you can hear a knock from below. And it's Jesus saying, hey, I'm here with you. So we might not know all the causes or 
reasons or the redemptive plot lines of suffering, but one thing is for sure, we do not suffer alone. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, his name is John Mark McMillan, and on his album, Peopled with Dreams, uh, he wrote a song called The Road, The Rocks, and The Weeds. And some of the lyrics from that, he's describing a conversation with his daughter. His daughter is asking very hard questions about heartache and sickness. And, and he wrote this song, and this, the lyrics say, I have no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a savior who will suffer them with me. I'm singing goodbye Olympus, the heart of my maker is spread out on the road, the rocks, and the weeds. He's not waiting on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. He's walking through it with us. When we go through um, suffering or loss, something that we get to do as ambassadors of heaven, I, I challenge you to start doing this. If you're in loss, pain, suffering, heartache right now, I want you to name its legacy. What will the legacy of this suffering be? Ashley and I, Ashley suffered a miscarriage many years ago. It's one of the hardest things we'd ever gone through as a couple. I know I'm speaking to a lot of you in the room. I know many of you have suffered from miscarriages and the pain that it brings. And when we were driving to the hospital to address the final stages of the situation, Ashley said, I know, first of all, we named the boy and we and she named his legacy, and she said, I know what his legacy will be. It's that we will praise the Lord forever for his short life. And we would make the devil regret the day that he touched us. 